0: Once again, hello, it is me, fellow worker Jason, and I'm here with my normal co-host, fellow worker Derek. Say hello, Derek. Hey, everybody. And a guest, fellow worker Matt, who uh, is going to talk tonight about social workers uh, in general. Uh, Matt, say hello.
1: Hi, everyone. How's it going?
0: Like I said, we're going to talk about social work today, something I know nothing about. So why am I here? Because I'm you, the audience, asking the questions. (laughs) So, yeah, let's start with the obvious. What encompasses social work uh, as a,
1: a career? What encompasses social work as a career? Well, I would say that social work is basically about the delivery of vital services. So, this looks like a profession which is involved in either directly providing said services in the form of individual therapy, group therapy, or other modalities of therapy, or by working in an organization that seeks to connect people who do not have some sort of vital resource to said resources so on that side what we call the macro side that could involve working for a housing authority which connects people who do not have homes to a source of stable housing or you could work for for instance washington community mental health which not only employs doctors, which prescribe psychiatric medicines for people, but also employs social workers who help their clients sign up for Medicaid, sign up for food stamps or access vital government services in that way. And if you want to follow the National Association of Social Works definition, a social worker is someone who has either a bachelor's or a master's of social work. There are some job titles in the United States. That you can only hold and be hired into if you hold one of those degrees. But I and people in the more radical tradition of social work often believe that a social worker is anyone in a professional or non professional capacity who devotes a lot of time to providing these vital services. So, at my place of work, one thing that I will give credit to my workplace for is that we employ people with master's degrees, bachelor's degrees. Other college degrees, or even people with high school degrees. And I think that is at the essence of social work. Uh, People join the profession for a myriad of reasons. Often it's because they were once helped by the profession themselves, or a loved one of theirs was helped by the profession themselves, or perhaps they recognize that the field of social work is well equipped to promoting economic and other forms of justice. Uh, I am, although I have my critiques of, of social work, of the profession, I love it at heart and
2: I could go on and on about it all day well, well, it's a good thing you're on the
0: podcast. Yeah,
2: <laughs> And well, that's also, you know, you know, I, I, I can't speak nearly as eloquently to the, to the subject matter as Matt, but wherever I have been organizing, I'm not a social, I'm not a social service worker. Um, And I'm not an expert in the field, but like one of the things that continues to blow me away is the sheer number of things that social service workers do. And that's why I actually refer to them as social service workers, because social workers seems so much more narrow. But when you think about like the industry of social work, it's like people who support the homeless who work in homeless shelters, it's people who work at like rehab facilities, folks who work at like placement centers, it's caseworkers, there are caseworkers, like, like who, who you wouldn't even necessarily think, you wouldn't even necessarily think of them as social workers in some cases, but they are doing social service work. Um, So it's, it's an incredibly encompassing and very diverse field that does a lot of human support.
1: Right. And another thing I'll add to that is that social workers, since they're involved with the broad sweep of humanity and many different dimensions of life, end up Needing to know about a wide variety of domains if they're to perform their jobs well. So, for instance, over the course of my employment, I brought my professional and educational background in behavioral health interventions to my job. But I've also learned about cooking, about the physiology of drug withdrawal and intoxication. I've learned about basic handiness and construction because our wonderful Medicaid funded facility, insufficiently funded facility uh, is liable to break down sometimes and everyone has to pitch in in fixing it and other forms of knowledge that you wouldn't necessarily expect a social worker to need some competency in. So yes, nothing but love for for my fellow social workers and for the profession. We'll get to how I feel about the people who employ us, though.
0: Now, I imagine because, as you just said, the social work, um, social services includes such a breadth of different careers and different people and different things that you do. It makes it hard to organize in because there's just they're so sporadic, so spread out. It's hard to organize what we can't define.
1: I'd say there's some truth to that. There's also some truth to the organizing power of the shared exasperation that a lot of social service workers feel. Everyone in my heart of hearts, I believe, gets into the social service work field for fundamentally good reasons and because they want to make a difference. So it's very much what we would call mission based work. However, in the practical realities, many people end up getting disenchanted by their work, by the fields. And it breaks my heart to see that because I don't think it's about the work itself. I don't think it's unfulfilling or will inexorably lead to burnout, I think it has to do with the conditions that so many social service workers labor under. And part of that, yes, is the job description and the many unwritten features of the job description that you would never see on an actual job description while applying for a social service work job. But you know darn well, you are going to be forced to perform and learn on the fly. So there, there is... There is some truth to what you were saying.
0: Yeah, um, I've actually found the best organizing tool is the same thing that connects all humans is that we are all suffering. You know, yep. very Buddhist <laughs> of me, I know. But like it's the one thing you could always connect with with a coworker or like, you know, anybody else is like, this sucks, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Many frantic break room conversations during our paltry moments of respite. Uh, you're right. Those are some of the greatest organizing opportunities.
2: Well, actually, yeah. I, so I, so I've got a question for for Matt here, Jason. If you don't mind me stepping on your question and answer feet, go for it. Uh, so, I, I, so I'm very curious. You know, I mean, so I've done a lot of external organizing with you and other social service workers um, over over the last couple of years, and um, we don't always have the time to just kind of like wax poetic or think about like you know what's happening in this industry. I mean. It's funny because I always hear social service workers talk about like how messed up things are and then they tell it they they tell me these like grueling stories about some crazy shit that happened and 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 they get people together and they and and they get close to organizing sometimes but they they often just don't quite get there and like what 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 do you think it is about the industry that like gets people close to organizing but never quite crossing that threshold
1: I think one part of it is how quickly the working conditions engender burnout among the employees, among the workers. So for instance, I have had the privilege of working with a few individuals who were very helpful and enthusiastic for the organizing drive at my particular place of work, who decided after a while, just screw it. This is too hard. I'm exhausted and I can't take it anymore. And I, I sympathize with that. I have felt the same way sometimes that I haven't left or looked for a new job and they have is not meant to be a comment on either one of our dispositions. But I think that's definitely a part of it. Uh, I've worked at my particular site, which is the Detox and Short-Term Treatment Center of a local addiction treatment agency. For about two and a half years now, and I am, as of right now, the senior employee at my particular job title, if that tells you anything about how quickly people burn out. So there's only so much that a body can take or that a worker's mental health can take in a field that is so chronically low paid, short staffed, and overworked, overburdened with tasks that often we carry home with us. So I think that's part of the reason why. And one talking point that has been helpful for organizing and agitating the workers I've spoken to is the promise that if we can win better working conditions, then we can enjoy the freedom of not having to think about finding the next job in a year because we know that we'll be totally burnt out and fed up by then. It's that rat race to hop from one social service job to another that I think characterizes a lot of social service workers' experiences. So I think it's a great talking point to show people that we can get us all off this stupid treadmill of burnout if we all stand together.
0: Yeah, I imagine with the nature of the work that like it it is more mentally taxing than like say you know my job answering a phone or something because you're dealing with parts of society that need help lifting themselves out of the bottom rung you know is that something that like you find a lot with social work is like you know just a lot of like man I can't be around a, you know another person overdosing again it's like really traumatizing for me and like that kind of thing
1: well thankfully most of us in our professional training or in our lived experience, if you are, for instance, someone who has experienced a period of addiction yourself and is now trying to give the gift of recovery to others, that isn't my experience, but it is the experience of many of my, of many of my co-workers whom I admire, um, it can be very emotionally exhausting. There are some days that are rougher than others where you are the one responsible for helping someone forward an emotional crisis of some sort. And that comes with the territory. That I think is something that most social service workers relish playing a part in uh, and seeing someone through to the other side of a crisis. So from that perspective, I don't think that social service workers who are engaged in organizing are angling to divest themselves from emotionally or mentally fraught situations. But what I think many people in the industry are crying out for is a solution to the chronic understaffing. It is one thing for me, for instance, who has been at this for a couple of years now, to devote say 30 minutes or an hour to sit with one of our clients and patiently listen to them recount maybe a traumatic experience that they had. It's another thing entirely when I have to sit up from my chair and tell this client that I'm sorry, we have to move on because I am also responsible for doing laundry and taking out the trash in my facility. And there are clients who are experiencing substance withdrawal whose vitals I need to take at the same time, vitals meaning their blood pressure and pulse and temperature. So for instance, at my particular place of work, there is typically only one to two counselors who are quote unquote on the floor with our clients at a given period of time. There might be a couple other counselors in the building who are answering phones or doing other forms of administrative work, but on average, it's one to two counselors for roughly a dozen clients and social workers recognize that that is unsustainable. And I think our bosses either don't or don't care.
2: Yeah. You know, I was actually reflecting while you were talking, um, I was, I was reflecting a little bit about like just the burnout in the industry and how common that is across low wage, low wage work in general. And like, it reminds me a lot, like what's the difference between, um, like the industrial age, the 1900s, um, and like what we, and what we do now. And like the iwws out here, we're doing quote unquote mutual aid. You know, we have, you know, uh, I think, you know, some, like, I think you're moving that and I asked you like hey do you help moving and that's a that's a genuine offer like this is what we do right we build these networks of support um it was very nice of you <laughs> well I'm not I'm not saying that to earn points right but like but like this is but this is an interesting question to me which is like how do you like how do you drive burnout like you can't necessarily stop burnout but like when i think of and it's a different industry but when i think of like you know coal miners uh, who who were living in like complete shit conditions and they lived in like coal mining towns. And I'm doing my best to not romanticize them because I, I didn't live in that time. I don't know what it was really like, but they had these very strong mutual aid networks. At least that's like the story, right? That's the, that, that's probably the romantic story where like they, they knew each other, they, they cooked for each other. They, they formed, um, support for one another. Um, they lived like in small areas together in many cases and and like when you when you look at that level of support versus like what level of support we can offer now like if you're a fellow worker at a job site who is organizing and and we're sort of like well we can provide you some hardship fund access we can you know we can invite you out to our once a week kind of mutual aid cooking thing that we do um it like like the level of mutual aid is not quite the same is it and so i feel like it's a lot easier for us to burn out because The support networks just aren't there. And I'm thinking of a campaign, the Mighty Good Coffee campaign that we had, that was one of the FCIWW's branch, more memorable ones. And one of the things that made that campaign so successful was just the degree to which workers had one another's backs. Like they cooked for each other. They helped each other out when customers were shit like you know it wasn't just one person saying hey get the hell out of the store it was every worker in the store saying get the hell out of the store um, and that that culture made it so much more effective for us to organize there i don't know what do you what, like, like like what do you think is that is that something that you can even build like not just in the modern world um, but like in particular in social service work and have you have had like what what do you think about that
1: I must regard it as a sort of chicken and egg type question where to debate whether solidarity drives organizing or organizing drives solidarity in this particular sector of the workforce is a question that I haven't devoted a lot of thought to, I will admit. But I think that's because I feel that if you attempt to foster one you end up in the downstream fostering the other. So Mm -hmm. the more we organize, I feel, the closer together we feel and we begin to develop a sort of class consciousness where now that our organizing effort has been live for probably about the past eight or nine months, workers will surreptitiously text each other during staff meetings or will meet up either over Zoom or sometimes in person to... Discuss the messed up thing that our president said or that a supervisor of ours said. So, the, in that sense, the organizing I think has helped to drive the solidarity, but the solidarity I think can also drive the organizing because I've noticed and we've been able to capitalize on the pre existing social networks that exist among our workers. The people who've been the most effective organizers have been the more gregarious, open, friendly people who have connections to other workers, not necessarily those who are the most steeped in Marxist orthodoxy, as happy as that would make me. Uh, it's more a matter of bringing the individuals who are socially skilled and respected within the agency into the fold and making sure that they feel they have ownership in this project. Cause then we can trust them to go out among their friends in the workplace, among their connections and start recruiting other people into the effort from there. Does that answer your question guys?
2: I mean, I think so. I think, I think it's a really, I think it's a really good, I think it's a really good answer. Like, I mean, that's the problem with romanticizing size in 1900s A, It was a hell of a time. Um, but also like, I was reading a book. Uh, it's probably sitting on my shelf somewhere over here. I can't remember what it's called now. It's like, it's like beaten up. It's like beaten down and rising up or something like that. It's a, it's like a labor history book, and it it's fine. It's a little academic, but one of the things that really drives me batty about it, I like the number of like times I read a UAW worker in the book talking to someone about how, well, you know, the UAW, we gave you the weekend, and we gave you like we gave you a forty-hour work week, which a lot of workers don't even have anymore. But regardless we gave you a 40 hour work week and that's what we have to stand with our union. And you know, like that's, that's an inadequate response to a person who asks the question, like, why should I get involved? Why should I support organizing in this space? I'm already tired as hell. I'm already beaten up. Like, why should I care? And I think your answer to that, like in your space is very, is very salient in that, you, you know, you do start to do it's relational organizing, right? It's, Knowing people, building those relationships, trusting one another, being honest with one another, um shooting those those texts to one another is a good sign that you're building up relationships in that space. And that you know that is definitely um, real solidarity that you're developing. That, so. Yeah,
1: and in a shameless plug for the IWW, I think one benefit of organizing with the IWW is that since it is not an organization which pays professional union organizers, to decide whether a given workplace is worth investing in and instead empowers workers i feel to take action for themselves i feel uses its organizers to train workers of any kind to stand up for themselves that gives the workers themselves a sense of empowerment and they don't feel that they're this new bureaucracy that they must contend with whose deliberations and machinations they might not necessarily be a part of or be included in instead they are the union and the union is them and that fact has been helpful in getting a few people involved in the organizing cause at this point in time not everyone in the workplace much like workers throughout the country are all that knowledgeable about unions because knowledge of unions and the presence in the average person's lives have been shunned and suppressed over the last few decades. So I think that the IWW's model of organizing has been helpful in showing people, in my workplace at least, that organizing is something you and your fellow workers do. Uh, something where you take the ownership of the effort and make what you want out of it
0: yeah and i'll say as a for the um for as as to the uh you know 1900s versus now or whatever um and like the uaw being like we gave you the weekend it's like what are you doing now though like <laughs> that was that was a long time ago we got that. <laughs> now what and as for like you know the old coal mining towns, those coal miners still stand up for each other. They're currently on strike in Alabama for three months. They're still doing the same thing. And, but like, I think our needs in 2021 are much different than they were in 1903. You know, like it's not just feeding each other and making sure everybody has a house. It's like a much more social, much more like divided, divided up labor force. And like, you know there's all these different types of work now there's gig work and stuff so it's like this whole division that keeps us from having like you said class consciousness where like you know we don't see each other as the same and our needs because of that have become com- wildly different
2: so i also you know one of the things that i hear when i'm organizing with social service workers is i've begun calling it the a word um and that is advocacy i keep hearing this advocacy word uh like it comes up semi-often. I hear about social service workers talking about how can we advocate for social service workers. And I hear some of them, you know, talk about the need to advocate on these issues. And, and it's like for some of them, organizing seems difficult, difficult. Like they understand, they're not, they're, it's not, it's not like they don't understand what organizing is, but they fall back towards this like advocating model of, of, of engagement. And, I wonder if you can talk about that, if you feel comfortable talking about that at all. Like, what What does that mean to you? And like, when you hear that word, like, well, why don't we advocate on this issue? Like, what does that mean for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So advocacy is an action that a lot of social service workers engage in during their day-to-day jobs out of necessity. Advocacy might look like me sitting with a client who, because of their educational and professional and class background hasn't been uh, inculcated into the middle class ease that helps you to navigate bureaucracies so I sit down with this client and speak with a government official a social uh, a social services official to convince them that this client needs Medicaid or I might sit down with a client's bank and help to help to form a platform for the client to speak for themselves, to back them up essentially. And I say that this happens out of necessity because sadly, our world is structured in a way that stacks the deck against a lot of people who deal with addiction. And because of that, it often feels like a client and I locking arms and marching towards this vast bureaucratic machine that we are up against. Our goal ultimately being connecting the client with some essential service that they absolutely need. And that is part and parcel with a lot of different social work jobs. So I think that a lot of social workers reach for the word advocacy when discussing organizing because it almost rhymes with an activity that they are familiar with. And so in my own organizing campaign that I'm co-chairing. The word adv- advocacy has come up a few times and I've been encouraged by some social workers whom I deeply admire and respect to go out and sit down with our boss and advocate for the workers as a whole. And that has been brought up a few times of just one of the main organizers in our efforts, sitting down and advocating for the group as a collective and I'm sympathetic to it because it's the model that a lot of us need to follow in our jobs. But I feel and I tell them when this uh, proposal is brought to me that we need to stand together. And if one of us is appointed to sit down with the boss, it will still be a one on one interaction between the boss who has all the power, who can fire the worker, who can silence the worker and a worker who might have the best interests of their fellow workers at heart, but is ultimately just one person. The DAC is stacked against them in that way. So what I try to encourage folks when the word advocacy is brought up is to instead ask about organizing, organizing over advocacy. And I think organizing looks like everyone joining hands and marching together, not, Necessary, not necessarily literally, although it is pretty badass when I hear about those kinds of things happening, but making sure that the workers use their strength, which is numbers, the boss has formal statutory power and the workers have numbers. And what I try to communicate to folks is that only by joining together numbers do we begin to level out the playing field and balance the skills for an actual negotiation over the terms of our employment
0: so you already talked about you know low staffing is a major issue and like not i think you said not enough training really um what other issues would you say are like the biggest ones in your field
1: insufficient training is definitely one of them and i would say that low staffing and insufficient training almost morph together to produce an insidious hybrid workplace issue of workers having no time and no space during the workday to either train others or be trained themselves. So this often leads to situations where, for instance, I was not aware of a pretty rudimentary aspect of my job duties until a few months into my employment. And I don't necessarily fault myself or my fellow workers who were, quote unquote, supposed to train me for that, I fault the fact that with often two counselors caring for 16, 18 clients at once, there really was no time in the day to get me comprehensively trained. So there's that issue. I would also say that low pay is endemic. When I was hired at my place of work, I was being paid eleven fifty an hour before taxes. To be a counselor at a residential addiction treatment center. And our pay has gone up a little bit by then. And maybe we can talk about uh, what exactly led to that later. But low pay is still definitely an issue. I would also add there being a lack of sufficient HR or options for conflict resolution. Uh, One management talking point that I've heard deployed on a few occasions is. Why do you need to go to HR or why why do we need to pay staff members whose primary goal is to resolve conflicts between workers? You guys are social workers. You should have the emotional and interpersonal skills sufficient to work this out yourselves without really understanding the dynamics of what's at play. For instance, if someone is experiencing racism on the job from a superior, no amount of Interpersonal skills on the part of someone experiencing that victimization is going to change it. I don't think it's their responsibility necessarily to approach the person who's been victimizing them and say, hey, stop that. It's in fact the job of a competent and fully funded and furnished HR department or other administrative department. And that's just not the case at my workplace, for instance. And Another workplace issue that comes up is insufficient professional development opportunities. Um, that's pretty much what I can think of off the top of my head at the moment. You
2: know, the racism element is something that I've also heard in common with uh with the service industry workers of the Ann Arbor area group that we do organizing with who want to organize in the service industry. Like there's a lot of racist customers, there's a lot of racist and sexist bosses, there's even some racist and sexist co-workers. And you know what do you do with them i will say that in my experience like i'm not saying get away from hr because having an hr person who does their job but hr is often there to protect the boss right like that's that's often who hr is who hr is there for one of the things that i you know i suggested in the group of workers was we like i would encourage us to think about ways that we can get away from using management structure in some ways because ultimately we keep like like whenever we lob power back into their hands we're giving them social leverage like there was one place that we were one social service place that had it so bad like they had social workers certified masters level social workers whose person who was doing like the like if you're a social worker, someone correct me if I'm wrong, that's Matt, it's your responsibility because mm-hmm. you're, you're the only person who does social work in the room. I don't know, maybe let me hear it. <laughs> it's um, supposed not know what he's talking about. <laughs> but, but, they, but, but they have to do like supervision when they're getting licensed or they get their license and they have to spend like a ton of hours getting supervised. And those conversations can be like very personal and emotional conversations in some yes. ways. And and like one of these places actually had supervisors available for folks but those supervisors were also their bosses and so this this created this really weird emotional tension where the person that you're pouring your heart out to is also using that shit to evaluate your work and that relationship becomes so becomes so messed up because we have now given the bosses like this emotional social supporty supportive like structure that now they have power over and, and with racism ammunition,
0: like and also want to manipulate you or whatever.
2: Yep. It's, it's so, it's so messed up and gaslighting in places. So, so like one of the things that I would like for folks to think about is just why go to the boss? Yes. So on the one hand, the boss should have a very clear mechanism for how we handle racism. That should absolutely be the case. We as workers should tell the boss what we want that mechanism to be and expect the boss to enforce it. But even further, we as fellow workers should be prepared um, to work through a process collectively. If someone's being racist, it's not that, it's not the person, it's not the victim's responsibility, it's us as a group. It's, it's like, and this isn't about getting together and like beating that person up. It's about getting together and say, listen, we've heard that this is a problem. This behavior, which we have observed and we have seen, is not acceptable behavior, and you cannot engage in it. We and, and then figure out a way to kind of. I I know anarchists who are probably way better at this conversation than I am right now, but like, how do you get together and like and like identify a bully and encourage like the bad actor to change their ways and provide? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? What's like it's it's like provide. It's not restorations. It's not it's not it's not reparations but reparations is a fine word for it but it's restorative justice right what's the restorative angle that we can come through because we don't want to fire a fellow worker we don't want you to leave the job unless you really are the worst thing in the world if you can be redeemed if we can if we can work together to make make this problem better and make a problem going forward i could i could go into some hard catholic stuff right now about like about like about, about about your sins and not doing them again and then maybe you'll go to heaven but i'm neither catholic nor interested in that line of reasoning so
0: yeah but redemption is something we're all very bad at as a society um <laughs> great at punishment i agree not so good at the the past that um one other uh speaking it kind of relates to what derek was just saying um is i from what i've heard from hearing reports about social circle social service workers organizing is a lot of uh, manipulation goes on in the field, where, like, like Derek was talking about the pour your heart out. No.
1: <laughs>
0: but also, um for, like, uh, like you said, some people who have had addiction then go to work to help people who have addiction, and then they will use that against them in some ways. Like, they'll be like, oh, we'll give you room and board, and, you know, now you're better now, but, hey, if, if you mess up, you might go back, and, like, they threaten them with their past, and that seems like a dangerous thing to be involved in.
1: Yeah, I would say that there's a certain element of that particularly in addiction treatment agencies. Many people who recover from addiction want to give back to want to give back in some way and want to perhaps work in addiction treatment themselves and it always just brings such joy to my face when Someone who I once knew in a client and counselor relationship. I now know in the context of a coworker-coworker relationship. It's unfortunate though, how management, I believe, tries to guilt said individuals into accepting crappy working conditions. I can't speak too much personally to this because number one, I'm not in recovery myself. And number two, Not a whole lot of examples come to mind, but I see on some workers' faces a sort of guilt over the prospect, over the possibility of standing up to their boss in some way. And it's tragic because it's not not their boss who led them to getting better. It is them, themselves, plus the local recovery community, plus, yes, the interventions of staff members but it's not like the president of our social service organization was there delivering therapy or providing case management tasks or the other day-to-day tasks that hopefully are mentally and emotionally nourishing to you when you are clients in one of our facilities. So that intentional deliver delivery of guilt, onto that section of the workforce, I find particularly appalling.
2: Um, well, it's, it's also true outside of your field. I mean, there I, I know um, in the Ann Arbor area, there are several employers that will hire um, like people who are in recovery and then use that against them for basically the entirety of their job. And in some of those organizing campaigns, some campaigns that we've organized, like those are the workers that have the hardest time speaking up because they have like this, abusive parent relationship with their bosses who like show them off to their friends. Like, look what, look, look at this thing that we did for this person. We gave them a job and then, and then we, you know, they gave them a job and they trusted them with things. But when it comes to like asking for better wages or time off, like they'll use that against them. And it's so fucked
1: up. That does not surprise me. Unfortunately, it's the marshalling of some of the most disgusting stigma against people who have experienced addiction in order to keep them in line yeah that that grosses me out
0: yeah and unfortunately i think the changing that isn't just you know um getting better wages and stuff for social workers it's changing that is changing the culture where like we stop treating people with addiction like lesser than you know like it's the same with how we exploit you know uh um immigrants and that kind of thing where we're just like Hey, I'm not calling ice on you. So, you know, you keep, so you better work hard for five bucks, uh, that kind of thing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's Ooh, right that, that, yeah. That once we start something. treating each other like human beings, and then it'll be much harder to exploit.
1: Right. Uh, that leads me to something, if I could comment on it. Go for it. Often, you hear this talking point when the drug overdose crisis is discussed that we must begin solving this crisis by eradicating stigma and by somehow changing ourselves so that our broader American polity stops being mean to people who use illicit drugs. And that will somehow lead to our drug supply being less poisoned and lead to intravenous drug use being safer. I would argue that, in fact, the first step would be to enact structural changes to drug policy that, for instance, will allow people to use illicit drugs in the light of day. Or perhaps we can even talk about decriminalizing the petty possession of illicit drugs so that people don't feel like they have to run from the police and use in out-of-the-way areas where they're more likely to use alone. Uh, Those very conditions which make it all the more likely that someone dies of an overdose. I think that those structural changes will both contribute to lessening the overdose crisis and that will reduce stigma because as people who use injection drugs, as they start to experience slightly less crappy health outcomes and are able to live more full, open lives and engage with broader society, that will reduce stigma. Similarly, I, with every fiber of my being, oppose the idea that social service workers can deal with burnout by practicing better (laughs) (laughs) self-care. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh (laughs) Or by working on themselves better or by incorporating even more of the very techniques that they teach at work into their personal lives. Because, Because all that that really does is it brings your work life home with you. And it leads to your work life and thinking about work and dealing with the effects of the workday eating up an even greater proportion of your life. So it, it rhymes with this sort of neoliberal impulse to boil everything down to individual actions and attitudes. So I've sometimes seen this meme crop up from my fellow workers, from other social service workers that says something along the lines of It's not bad self care that causes burnout. It's bad working conditions. And my heart sings every time I see it because I think that people understand what the causes are. People understand that social workers in general tend to practice pretty good self care. So there's already an understanding of what the causes are. I think the main objective for people organizing these spaces is to unite people who feel that, who feel that way and to help each other realize that we're all on the same page here and we're not quite as alone in our understanding of the cause as we have been led to believe. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. I think, it, I think if this pandemic's taught us anything is that, especially in American society, um, we will shoot ourselves in the foot for rugged individualism, whether that's a worship of self-care or just, oh, yeah. Yeah, one well, self care is it's such
2: a load of horseshit anyway. Like, like yeah. it, it completely excuses completely excuses the employer from having any having to take any structural responsibility for their part in the blame. Like, I, as much as the next guy. Like, I'm gonna say there there is such a thing as a bad worker. Um, but but totally. more often than not, I typically would argue that that a bad worker is caused by bad working conditions that bad working yes. conditions lead to burnout. They lead to frustration. They lead to, you know, inadequately in, inadequately being able to provide for yourself and having to pick up a second job just to make the, just to pay the bills and being perpetually tired. And, and that attitude you have is because you're running on four or five hours of sleep and right, and right. making garbage wages for it. Like, of course, people. Of, of course, it's just self care. You can self care away five hours of sleep. Don't worry about it,
0: <laughs> Derek. If you have any more questions,
2: no, I think we've covered quite a bit. I know at some point, um, I'd like to have fellow worker Adam on the podcast as well to talk about some of these issues. Uh, maybe we can have a whole SWOO panel at some point. Who wants to come? It's a social. That's a social service workers united of Southeast mm-hmm. Michigan. And you know, come I'm on gonna, and talk. About out it.
0: I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a, a like a trap song. Let me see you SWOO.
2: It's great. I want that. I want that song. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. So I think that wraps up. Thank you so much, Matt, for being on. Yes. Um,
1: thank you so much for uh, having me here, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Derek, as Are always.
2: You, uh, happy to be here. And, you know, Matt, you're always welcome to come back. Uh, this is a podcast that's open to all of our fellow workers. The Ipsy IWW um, is the principal place that we plumb for people. But uh, as a reminder to those listening... Anybody who wants to come on the One Big Podcast has an issue, has an item they want to talk about can reach out to us. Jason throws the email in there. Feel free to reach out and let's have a conversation.
0: And I'm going to eat some gas station food because self-care. <laughs> Great.
1: <laughs> Good <laughs> luck, Jason.
2: Bye, everybody. Have a self care
1: night, everyone. Good Bye. <laughs> Bye.
0: Hello, it's fellow worker Jason here again to remind you to send us your work horror stories recordings so you can put you in the uh, spooky episode hopefully coming out next month about all the crap we've done for our jobs and maybe build some solidarity in the meantime also i realize this episode's been about a week late but we had convention which went really well and i was glad to talk to some fellow workers from across the union but yeah send us those recordings i really want to hear some uh, crazy stories because i've got a few that uh we'll probably top it and that's the show, folks. It was recorded and edited by me, fellow worker Jason. The intro and outro song are also by me, fellow worker Jason. If you'd like to join the IWW and be part of the One Big Union, go to iww.org join. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, you can always email us at ipslanny at iww.org. And until next time, an injury to one is an injury to all.